0: Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org.
1: Welcome to today's Forum. My name is Joe Neal. I'm a health editor at National Public Radio, NPR, and I cover health and health policy. Today's program is about an hour long, and it focuses on a poll we just released called What Shapes Health? Looking at the social determinants of health in America. Uh, The event is a collaboration with the Forum, uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and NPR. We'll first talk about the poll, and then we'll frame the issues. Uh, Then we'll examine public perceptions of what impacts health and what actions we can take to improve health. Uh, we'll take questions from people here in the studio audience and from online. If you have a question you want to email us, it's, uh, the address is theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. Uh, you can tweet us at hsphforum using the hashtag whatshapeshealth. That's all one word, of course. Uh, You can also participate in a live chat discussion that's going on right now on the forum website. So let me start by introducing our panelists today. We have a very distinguished panel. Uh, On my immediate right is Robert Blinden. Bob is professor of health policy and political analysis at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, To his right, Dwayne Proctor. Dwayne is the director of Eliminating Health Disparities at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, To his right, Lisa Berkman, professor of public policy and epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And to her right, Rebecca Oney. Rebecca is the co-founder and CEO of Health Leads, a very innovative organization that she'll be telling us about a little bit later. But first, uh, let's find out what the poll showed us. We we had some surprising findings, and uh, Bob is here to summarize those.
2: Hi. So first, what is no surprise is that Americans worry about their health. Uh, So you would expect that six out of ten at this very moment report they're doing that. The surprise if you are in the polling world is when you have a problem and you ask people what causes it or affects it they usually give you two or three things and quit and so if we can have the first slide what we have here so we're talking about people who are very concerned about health here and you basically have ten items that are very close to each other Uh, the top are lack of access to quality medical care, uh, personal behavior of all types. Uh, so Americans really do think a lot about personal behavior. Uh, threat of virus or bacteria. Uh, those of you following Ebola just say it's a virus, and people are really very uh, concerned about it. And then the high stress. But the uh, other items are, are very, very close. Uh, What isn't very, very close is what's often of interest and concern to many experts, which is low income. That isn't seen instantly as as the driver. However, America is made up of people who are low income, a lot of them. And they have very different views. And that's important uh, to relate. Uh, so on, on this, they push up on, on this slide uh, their uh, poor uh, housing and neighborhood conditions. is very, very high. They also uh, push up uh, poor working conditions. And so for so many people listening, what, I have no idea what they mean. Uh, but a share of America really uh, is really bothered by the working conditions that they do. And they think it dry, drives their health. Uh, for that. Uh, So, uh, the uh, uh, second issue, we can go to the slide, uh, is uh, how much do people really think uh, that what happens to children has a long-term impact on their health? And uh, for a lot of people, there's this, oh, uh, youngsters are resilient, things, you know, they get over it, life moves on. And what we found is that, and I'll talk about both individuals and people's overall uh, views, uh, but people do think a significant number of things can go wrong in childhood that really stick with you. And it really affects your health. So we're not just talking about their economic, it actually affects their health. And so uh, being abused uh, or neglected uh, in childhood uh, eating a poor diet, and we'll get back to this later, but uh, uh, people have had an impact. All through this, people say diet. I believe if we did this 10 or 15 years ago, no. It, w- it would not not have occurred uh, where it is. Uh, there's a great deal of concern on, on both lists about people living in, in uh, uh, polluted areas. And the opposite of the measles debate is that a very large number of people we interviewed think it really is important that kids get vaccines, and it really affects their lives later uh, if they don't. So there there is is another side to this. Again, uh, the poverty issue doesn't uh, uh, have the same resonance as the the other issues. Uh, In the poll, we also ask you about yourself. And so uh, this is really quite surprising. Four out of 10 people. Uh, said that something happened to them as a child that has affected their health as an adult. Uh, That's quite extraordinary. If you're low income, it was 50%. Uh, So uh, this is not a small issue. Things are going on in childhood that people let later remember. A lot of it had to do, uh, we gave them a long list of people, with things that go wrong in the family. Uh, divorce, death, separations, losing jobs, uh, uh, poverty, a- accidents. So a lot of issues that go on. But what's really very, very important is that real life people uh, report. Uh, that things happen in their childhood that really affect, affect them. Uh, so uh, the last thing let me just uh, talk about uh, briefly is we're trying to figure out just normally, how do people think their own lives are going in terms of their health? So what we did is we gave them a benchmark, your parents. What else could we compare it to? They're, they're not readers of national health statistics. Uh, so uh, how do you do against your parents? And it, it's a mixed thing. So four in 10 people believe that they, they're healthier than, than their parents. Uh, one in 10 think they're uh, worse, and the half say it's about the same. You know, My life's pretty much that. So the success here is, and that could be a whole show for Joe, he is over age 50 and 60. We're in a whole new world. These people really think they're healthier than their parents. And it's a whole new life for them and what it means and everything else. That's not true for low-income people. So there are great divisions, and and that's where we take it. So what, what is just the quick takeaway from the poll is that when we switch from things like medical care or schools uh, to broadly health, there are a lot of things on people's mind. There's not, not a small number. Uh, but people focus on what happens to children. And uh, there's a mix. about. Progress. That that's our takeaway from here. It's a bit of a surprise of what we thought we would find. What would you think you'd find? We thought we there'd be a couple issues that everybody would focus on, and that would be health. Right. Well, one
1: of the one of the main findings that Bob's just talked about is uh, abuse and neglect in childhood being a significant factor in later adult health, and the public's perception that these two are very closely related. We'll get back to that um, in in just a moment, but first I want to go further back to where you started on, on income disparity and play a clip from uh, one of the stories we put on NPR yesterday morning, on morning edition. Uh, it's by uh, correspondent health correspondent Patty Naimond, uh, who looked at several parts of the poll, but in particular we started by looking at uh, income disparity and how uh, you'll hear the story of a woman who had a job and had or was unemployed, had health problems, and then life improves. So let's go ahead and play the clip.
3: Those making more than $75,000 a year have very different perceptions of what affects health than those making less than $25,000. People like 29-year-old Anna Beer.
4: getting out my split-piece soup. I had half of it yesterday.
3: Beer's making lunch at home in Spokane, Washington. From a
4: can, not homemade.
3: She agrees with one-third of those who are low-income, Lack of money has a harmful effect on health. This is probably the most poor we've been. (laughs) Beer responded to an NPR Facebook posting about the poll. She lives with her husband in the basement of her father's house. She's going to college now in the hopes of getting a better-than-minimum-wage job. Her husband works at a retail store.
4: Living on just his income, he's working full-time like 10-something an hour, which is above minimum wage, which is nice, but it's not enough to make things work.
3: And not enough to pay for healthy, nutritious food.
4: The canned vegetables and the frozen vegetables are not nearly as healthy as fresh and whatnot. They've had preservatives and stuff added to them, and a lot of times a lot of salt that's just not
3: good for you. But they're cheaper. When Beer was working as a nanny, she got laid off last summer. Her salary, along with her husband's, meant they could buy fresh fruits and vegetables and even fresh chicken from local farmers markets. Beer says that made a huge difference in her health.
4: My migraines that I had went from maybe two or three a month to maybe one every couple months, which is amazing. I've never had that happen before.
3: The migraines are back now, and Beer gets tearful, talking about how frustrating things have become.
4: My health is deteriorating, and I know what, what the cause of it is, but I can't fix it.
3: It's just hard.
1: And so I, we, we chose that story. We, we did a call-out on Facebook and got hundreds of stories of people who um, were connecting uh, various things in their life with their health. And this was one example uh, that brought out the poll finding about uh, how income, income and, and job status can have uh, a very significant impact on health. Um, the story went on. Uh, if we were, could play the whole thing, it runs to eight minutes. We can't do that here. But you'll hear uh, we draw the link and, and talk about that this is, there's a lot of evidence out there to support this connection between Uh, the circumstances we find ourselves in and our health Um, and one of those circumstances is what we find ourselves uh, uh, in as children and the abuse and neglect that we may suffer as a child and uh, Dwayne Proctor, uh, you focus on health disparities and childhood Mm -hmm. experiences, adverse childhood experiences at the foundation, Mm -hmm. Uh, tell us more. Well,
5: you know, when I, when I hear that clip, you know, it's de- it's, we're desperate to have a culture of health in America. Um, this young woman is desperate to live in, in, a, in a nation that um, can, can take care of those things. It's very, very clear that non medical, social, and economic uh, disparities drive health outcomes. Um, the respondents in the poll know this, okay? This audience knows this. Anna Beer knows this when she relates that. And we, we really have to start responding to what we know here. In my hometown, I grew up in Washington D.C. We've been there for multiple generations, and um, we use the metro to get around town. And I, I'm sure some of you have seen the metro map. Well, I have a replica of that map in my office. That's in uh, the RWJF Commission to Build a Healthier America report. And in that ma- in that one depiction, it shows that where you get off, what stop you use on the metro you can um, show what the life expectancy is in that particular area in that community. And DC is really not that large. If you live in the inner loop of the Beltway, um, then chances are your life expectancy is lower than if you live in one of the outer loops uh, going out towards Maryland or towards Virginia. And so if a a child is um, growing up in an environment that has high stress, high trauma, um, that if she is more likely to have um, some illnesses in her adult life that um, she probably wouldn't have to suffer from if that wasn't the case. If she grows up in a, in a community or a neighborhood where there isn't access to quality health care, where the education system isn't um, supporting her in the ways that it should, if her family doesn't have access to uh, healthy foods, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and otherwise in her life, she's going to have more complications. And these things are all socially determined. If, um, if the housing system is poor, if the neighborhood is a polluted neighborhood, if um, all these different things that we all see in our everyday lives that are part of our social environment, um, these things are actually driving health outcomes to a, to a great deal and a great um, extent. So when I look at that map that's on my wall, I don't see just the subway stops. What I do is I see this little girl. And I see this little girl who could be my mother, could be my aunt, could be my cousin, could be my neighbor, who is going to grow up and have to deal with these um, these these situations uh, that are predetermined by um, social factors, about systems that are not um, up to par. And these things are determining health
1: outcomes. It's um, very, very clear. Uh, thank you. Um, I live in the center of DC, so I'm a little concerned about those findings. But sure. um, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Right, absolutely. Um, next, we'll hear from Lisa Berkman. Uh, Lisa's done pioneering research in social epidemiology. And um, talk to us a, li- a little bit about the connection between workplace job and uh, family dynamics.
0: Sure, sure. So well, building on what Dwayne said, I want to emphasize that when we think of the largest drivers of health. They are largely social and economic factors. And this field of social determinants has taken off a lot. Um, it's important to know that if you look at life expectancy in the United States, you think we're doing really well. Actually, we're not. We are actually in the bottom of OECD countries now for life expectancy, and this is especially true for women. It's true for older people. It's true for young and middle-aged adults, and it's true when you look at infant mortality. So there's something about being in America today that exac- exactly is not driving good health, but actually undermining our health. And when you start to look at the disparities, they're remarkable. So when you look at people in the bottom, people in the lowest income, Quintiles are at the bottom in terms of education, they have actually absolutely gotten worse in many of the indicators of health over time. So while life expectancy in the United States has sort of stagnated, we've gotten a little bit better, Um, other countries have gotten a lot better, people at the bottom have either stagnated or absolutely, in terms of absolute mortality rates or outcomes, um, gotten worse. So what is going on in the United States that's not good for the United States as a whole, but is especially bad for people in the most disadvantaged um, situations? And I think largely we can think about these as a set of social um, institutions, um, things that we can do something about, um, things that um, people in other countries have done things about. Um, Certainly, um, education is one of them. But the two that are often not fully explored have to do with work and labor participation and family dynamics. So we focus a lot on neighborhoods, which are very important. We focus on education, which is very important. But in fact, labor policies change all the time. How work is organized changes all the time. And family dynamics in the United States also are very changeable. So if we look at the way um, right now up until um well over the last decade and certainly into the future it's now estimated that about 41 percent of births will be born to single moms Um, we now have a study that looks at the health of single moms my sense is that single mothers do everything in the world they can do to take care of their children everything if you ever looked at um, the plight of single mothers you know how hard they um try to make things better and yet what happens is The drip, drip, drip of this incredibly stressful sort of long-term situation ends up taking a toll. And by the time you look at single moms when they're older, they're in much worse physical health um, and mental health than moms who have partnered with other people. And maternity benefits, we now know, also reduce the risk of long-run depression. So you look at older people now who've lived under a time when they had maternity leave, and they're less likely to be depressed in old age. So a lot of the work that we've been doing has focused on work. And there are three aspects of work that are really important, and then we can come back to them. One of them is just wages. As the story told, minimum wage is not enough to really make a living. We have to increasingly think about living wage um, issues. And um, dual wage earners and families are now by far the most common. Uh, That takes another toll on families. We need to think about flexibility in the workplace. So as we have aging societies, complex family constellations, single moms, single parents, people who are in a sandwich generation. Um, Flexibility and part-time work is very important. The United States ranks, last time I looked, um, the lowest among also all OECD countries in having part-time work available, which is mixed. And finally, job insecurity, I think, drives an enormous set of outcomes for people. So when we look at the effects of economic recessions, of graduating during periods of um, recessions, we understand the long-term toll that poor economies take, again, on the most disadvantaged populations, but on all of us as a whole. And so this nexus between work and family as institutions that we can change and improve becomes one, I think, that's the most viable pathways to um, reducing health disparities over the next time. I'll stop there.
1: Oh, well, thank you. No, we'll, I'll want to hear more about solutions in this, the next mm-hmm. half of the, the program. But first, I want to hear from Rebecca Oney. Rebecca, you're CEO of Health Leads, which uh, was started in 1996, mm-hmm. a very innovative project. Tell us more about it.
6: Sure. So I, I think as folks here have articulated so well, and as the poll results confirm, um, we know that patients' social needs have a huge impact on health outcomes. And um, Anna's story that was just played um, on NPR, you know, voices just so poignantly this connection between the two things. And you know, this this story of the link between um, access to resources and health is told to healthcare providers day in and day out. It's told directly through patients sharing with their doctors that, you know, for example, they won't be able to refill the controller medication because their more <coughs> urgent priority is the fact that there's no food at home that night. But it's also told indirectly through missed clinic visits because folks can't find transportation to the doctor by being medication-incompliant You know, which really means not being able to take your insulin because you can't refrigerate it, you know, or not taking your medicine because you don't have food to take with your medicine. And I think the challenge is that when patients like Anna show up at the doctor's office and tell their stories, you know, they're often viewed as non-compliant or complex. And the sense is that the healthcare providers just don't even know where to begin in addressing those needs. And, you know, we've heard stories like Anna's hundreds if not thousands of times, both directly from patients. but also from physicians and other healthcare providers across the country. Uh, A few years ago, the Robert Johnson Foundation did a survey of about 1,000 primary care physicians and pediatricians across the country, rural, urban, suburban, and 85% of those physicians said that addressing patients' social needs was essential and as important as addressing their medical conditions. But the same percent said that they didn't feel confident in their ability to be able to address those needs. And we've heard this framed by physicians as the compulsion to practice what they call literally a don't ask, don't tell policy. can't ask patients if they're running out of food at the end of the month, because what if they said yes, what would we do? Um, So Health Eads is really born of this reality and, and just the reality that if we are honest about it, the healthcare system as it's currently designed is actually not set up to keep patients healthy. So our model is a simple one, when patients come into the doctor's office and the physician or nurse or social worker identifies any of these unmet resource needs that will have an impact on the health of patients. So access to healthy food, safe housing, heat in the winter, the provider can actually prescribe those resources for the patient the same way she would medication. Patients then take their prescription to health leads right there in the clinic waiting room And we have a core of about a thousand advocates who work side by side with patients to help them navigate their ways to the community resources that they need in order to be healthy. Uh, So we're in about 22 clinics uh, now in seven cities, about 95% of our patients either secure at least one of those resources or actually say they don't need further follow-up because they now have the information they need to be able to take care of their health. So I will admit the thing that kind of drives us crazy at this point in time is that um, this notion of a healthcare system that addresses patients' social needs as a standard part of quality care is still viewed as... Wildly aspirational, <laughs> and um, I think you know it just begs the question of you know why is the imperative to address what causes health still in limbo within the context of the healthcare system itself? Um, you know, so just briefly, you know, there's the good news is that there's been some structural changes that have started to create will around this. So the Affordable Care Act is a great example. Population health, patient-centered medical home, um, and you know the the incentives are slowly starting to align around this. But the challenge is. The way to do it. And to be candid, the kind of the lack of a very direct and honest conversation about what is the role of the healthcare system with respect to patient social needs. Um, and what we see in the absence of a, of a strong answer to that question is a bifurcated approach where either the healthcare care providers kind of retreat, um, you know, like we can't fix the war on poverty, <laughs> you know, we don't know where to begin, which is legitimate in a lot of ways, or they start to wade in but don't really have the resources or focus or capacity to be able to effectively address these social needs and don't necessarily have the, tr- the experience in working closely with community organizations to do so. So that I think is the real challenge ahead is how do we, how do we have this conversation about the specific role that, that the healthcare system itself can play in generating health in this country?
1: But I would just ask you, how do you layer on this very important need in a health system that already is spending more than any other country in the world?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think the the case uh, uh, to be made, and I think this is you know borne out by a lot of the evidence about the impact of social needs on health outcomes, is that actually the only way for us to spend less money on health care is by addressing patients' social needs. In fact, if we continue to fail to do that in the ways we have, we should expect that health outcomes will grow worse. And um, that there'll be more expensive health care that's required. I mean we um, you know see patients all the time where you know they're not showing up for critical preventative visits because of these basic things like they don't have the bus fare to take you know two or three buses to the doctor's office, and so they skip the visit. And you know that's both has an impact with respect to accessing the preventative care that will um, ideally prevent some of the, the bad health outcomes downstream. But it also means that it's much more it's much more difficult for folks to be able to um, actually assume responsibility for taking care of their health because of these challenges that they encounter in doing so.
1: Well, I want to get to some more questions in a minute. But first, I want to uh, ask Bob. We asked a question in the poll um, of what people think needs to be done. And can you tell us what we found?
2: So, I mean, it,
1: people had offered solutions.
2: Uh, they do. But actually, some of them will have some controversy with us. So the, the good news, I think, for, for people here is uh, people have really grasped the food issue, just like we did here. They've also grasped the role of environment pollution, air, water, housing, and, and everything, and doing something about, about it. Uh, they're uh, clearly in, but I'm not uh, sure I- exactly what they mean by improving the quality of medical care, what goes for it. So, but the two issues which are tension from the discussion is uh, there is a huge emphasis on individual behavior. And having looked at other polls of this, America's divided. When you say individual behavior, some believe that you should go home and deal with your problem. Uh, Others believe that you need outside help. And so we have uh, doing something about individual behavior is really very, very important here. Uh, But you could walk away with two different messages from that. And the uh, last thing, which is really very difficult, uh, low-income people in this survey here recognize what it means to be low income in America. A large number of people, if you pull them out, don't. So the, the recommendations are more generic. Uh, no, I don't want anybody living in a polluted community. No, I, I don't do this. But they, they're not as focused on low-income people, I think as if we, we, we were discussing that. Uh, but the, the two big wings are, I'm absolutely convinced, the focus on healthy diets just did not exist a decade ago, and concerns about environmental areas. But the personal behavior is going to be a tricky issue. Because here, we will think it's one thing. And somewhere else in America, they will think personal behavior somewhere else.
1: Well, I want to pick up on that. One of the things uh, that this next video clip shows that was produced by um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is that people do seem to get the food part of it. Uh, this video looks at um, efforts to solve the problem of food deserts, uh, in this case in Nashville. So if we can roll the clip.
7: In Nashville, there's clear inequity in our food system in terms of where food is available and to whom and at what quality and at what cost the fact that there is no grocery store in a neighborhood, but there are five discount beer and tobacco stores, or that the only convenience store in the neighborhood sells rotting fruits and vegetables, and you're overcharged for food stamp purchases. Restoring Nashville is a campaign for affordable, healthy food access for all of Nashville. There are three neighborhoods in Nashville that are considered food deserts. North Nashville, which is three and a half to four square miles. East Nashville, specifically around Casey Place, which is the largest and oldest public housing development in the city. And the Edge Hill neighborhood is surrounded by affluence, but there is no grocery store in the neighborhood. We're having problems by Edge Hill being a food desert. Residents
5: that want to go to a grocery store, they have to use the bus. Robbie came to me and said, what do you think about having a mobile market? And what are some of the things that you'd like to see on the truck? And I see everything.
7: The city has a magnifying glass on this mobile market to see if food desert residents are really interested in
3: purchasing fresh food. You can make so many great things with this. I think if I can prove that the community is eating healthier, if there is a demand for this food, then it won't be hard to bring a grocery store in. Thank you.
7: Like the mobile market, the Save-A-Lot in North Nashville that opened maybe a month and a half ago really sets the stage for grocery stores locating in food desert neighborhoods.
5: So far from what I'm looking at, looks pretty good, affordable. So with, I'm pretty sure the other guests in the store, they shopping just as well as I'm shopping, trying to keep the money where it need to be. We love broccoli in my house. Cornelius, my nine-year-old, he's a fan of broccoli. I used to weigh 326, so I lost a total of like 95 pounds and all from me eating healthy and doing the things that I'm supposed to do. The way that I shop, it looks healthy to me, so it's, it's valuable to my family.
7: There is currently in formation a statewide task force to look at food access. We worked directly with Senator Burke and the food trust to bring the food trust to the state legislature and give a presentation about food deserts.
2: People were talking about food deserts afterwards. What are the different ways that public policy can affect these choices? And that's how we came up with the Food Desert Relief Act. We also want to make sure that people understand that When it passes, that's not the solution to the food deserts. It's another step in our ability to provide access to people. This is a community effort. Government is one part of this, but it's really about community leaders and nonprofits all coming together to say, this is important. Over time, I believe that will change and inform people's lives.
1: So Rebecca, How does a group like Health Leads accomplish something like was done in Nashville?
6: Yeah, well, so I think that the example that comes to mind is um, uh, in June of this year, Health Leads launched at the West County Clinic, which is part of Contra Costa Regional Medical Center um, out in California. And Mm -hmm. And when we um, began working with the clinic, actually in in partnership with Kaiser Permanente, we did a baseline um, survey of the patients around their unmet social needs. And, you know, most uh, most clinics in the country don't actually ask their patients about their social needs. And one of the things that we learned, which was, I have to say, even shocking to us, was that 62% of the patients in the clinic were reporting that they were hungry and running out of food at the end of the month or not having access to healthy food, which is like, that's, that's a really substantial number. And um, and you know the tragedy was that at the same time um, CalFresh, uh, which is the um, the uh, SNAP program in California, which actually enables folks to have um, have money to be able to spend on food and and ideally healthy food, that forty five percent of the CalFresh benefits were going unused. So here you have this profound mismatch and. When we got in there, you know, we started connecting patients to CalFresh, and um, about six weeks in, we presented our initial data to the physicians and other providers in the clinic, and you know, showed that in fact we had succeeded in, in beginning to submit these applications and secure um, access to food for these patients. And the physicians were literally teary, and they said, you know, like we had consider we had considered the fact that our patients are hungry almost an immutable quality of our patient population. We had assumed this is something that we would have to live with and they would have to live with in perpetuity and we would just have to work around it and somehow deliver clinical care around this profound reality. And you know, they said we just never imagined that this was something that could be actionable. So health leads, you know, health leads role, but I think more importantly, health leads approach is around saying there's ways that we can systematize using the healthcare system as a gateway to connect patients to those community resources. And frankly, really highlight where the absence of those community resources as in a food desert is directly having an impact on the health of patients by really documenting the presence of social needs in a patient population and then the health outcomes and utilization data of those patients.
1: And the outcome in this case was?
6: Well, so this is exactly part of what we're working to evaluate actually with Contra Costa and Kaiser. What's what's fascinating is that one of the key barriers to really understanding the impact of social needs on low-income patient populations is the fact that the social needs data, and even more importantly, the resolution of those social needs, the success or lack thereof in connecting patients to community resources, hasn't existed. So we haven't actually been able to then triangulate that data again with the claims data, the utilization data, the health outcomes data. And to really make a kind of once and for all compelling case that this is, in fact, something that, of course, should be an integral part of the way that healthcare is delivered in this country.
1: And it seems like you have to do that in each, loca- each location. It was done in Nashville. The public, uh, the policymakers became aware of this, took action, and change happened. But it's not something that. It, it's a case-by-case case basis, it seems.
6: Well, it seems like the, the opportunity here is to begin to really work with um, healthcare care systems to be constituents around the quality of the resource landscape, and both constituents with respect to the resource landscape locally, but frankly, to begin to have a set of peer-to-peer conversations around, you know, what is the role of the healthcare system with respect to patient social needs, so that while the resource connections may happen locally, the imperative for the healthcare system to have a real stake um, in an engagement with patient social needs, we believe is something that can really happen at a national level.
1: Interesting. Uh, I want to turn to Lisa. One of the uh, findings in the section that Bob was just talking about is that improving the economy and availability of jobs is seen by the public. 49% I'm looking over here at Bob's slide. uh, 49% said that would have an impact on health. Uh, If you would, talk a little bit more about the economy and job availability and people's health, because we've had boom times in this country simultaneous with continued bad health. I mean, you, t- you talked earlier about this, this group of people who just never seem to get better. The life expectancy goes up uh, for some, but then it stays stable or goes down for others. Talk a little bit more about the, the interrelation there.
0: Sure, sure. So I think most people recognize that jobs form a central part of their life and are really central to their well-being. That without a job, um, you're in trouble. Um, during most times. What's amazing is how many people have precarious jobs. Jobs that they flow in and out of, jobs they feel um, they can't uh, afford not to show up for. So if they're sick or their children are sick they will lack any kind of sick leave or sick days that they feel they have to show up anyway otherwise they will lose those jobs. So there are lots of policies that we could think about um, where issues around labor practices would could be designed to improve health and the really optimistic scenario is that these kinds of Um, policies and practices, which I'll talk about in a a second, could also be very good for businesses. These are not things that take um, a real hit out of businesses often, although they they may think about that. So we have been part of a research network for about a decade um, called the Work, Family, and Health Network, which is funded by NIH and a number of foundations. And we've tried to look at aspects of jobs and job design and how organizations are designed Um, in terms of the impact that health, um, in terms of how those organizational practices will impact health. And at first we thought we'd have a really hard time finding companies to sign on with us. And the company that we work most closely with is actually a long-term care um, industry. It's a large New England, actually it's a national, although we focused on New England, network of long-term care facilities. And the reason they signed on is not an altruistic Um, one, although they were interested in improving the health of their employees. But they really thought it would be better for the bottom line, that they would reduce turnover, that they knew they had a huge sickness absence um, problem. And Uh, I'm
1: sure they must have had the number of low-wage workers, people just at minimum The
0: majority. So the majority of workers in long-term care are nursing assistants or low-wage, lower, middle-wage earners, um, mostly hourly wage and they know they have a problem. I mean, these, these companies know they have a problem. And the idea that you might fix this, not by just changing the behaviors of those employees, but by changing how work is organized with a spillover effect on a set of behaviors was really central. So in the end, we've done two randomized control trials, one in a long-term care company, one in a high-tech um, company, and discovered that By designing these interventions, which basically empower low wage earners um, to redesign work in important ways for them. So they get to redesign the work, so the job, so that it works. With the bottom line is that the work still gets done. You don't walk in and out, but you redesign work so it's more flexible, so it's responsive to workers' um, needs. And that turns out, along with coupling that with manager training, to change the whole culture um, of how work is practiced, to incorporate both family practices and family flexibility, and be good for health. So in our interventions and some of our trials, we've now um, found that people change tobacco consumption. They smoke less when work is redesigned. Um, They lose weight when work is redesigned. they turn up more, <laughs> they are less likely to be absent um, from work, and that these have effects on spillover effects on their families. So it's better for their kids, better for their partners, um, better overall. Give me
1: a, a, a specific example. When you talk about flexibility, what are you changing? What, what change? Is it work hours? Is it What is it?
0: So for nursing homes, for instance, it's the most highly regulated industry in the world, just about. You can't not be there. There is no work home. A few days. So the kinds of flexibility that got changed were people partnered. So I sat in one meeting where one of the CNAs um, had a a a nursing assist, certified nursing assistant, Mm -hmm. um, was a man whose um, wife had locked herself out of the car and had to pick up the kids. So this is a problem all of us face, (laughs) right? (laughs) Periodically, we all walk out, right? CNAs don't walk out. (laughs) Um, So he negotiated, he was taught as part of this thing that he could negotiate with somebody. So he asked one of his partners to stand in. He actually took two of his breaks, gave the keys (laughs) to um, to his wife, got the kid on time and came back to work. So in another scenario, he would have either walked out completely and missed a whole day or lied and said he was sick, which is not true. The nursing home would have suffered, he would have suffered, he would have lost wages. But this was two hours. This is the solution you and I would would have. Same thing for doctor's appointments. If you can tell the truth and say, I'm going to be gone for two hours, I'm going to go to a PTA meeting, I'm going to my kid's basketball, um, I will be back, you can plan. This is not something that most industries think about. Um, So that's an example of how work gets redesigned at the employee level. At the manager level, managers um, in many um, long-term care and many organizations are not picked for their managerial training, but rather for their clinical expertise. So they're great nurses, but they're terrible managers. And they don't really understand that you could have flexible practices. You as a manager could decide informally, I'll redesign work. I'll change the culture so that if somebody takes care of their family, they aren't. This isn't a negative. This isn't slacking off. It's it's actually balancing things. And once you do that, you improve the whole work site, and it ends up being being in the end profitable for everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. Dwayne, we um, we've heard you talk about culture of health um, earlier on. Um, how how is the the foundation supports a lot of work in this area to try to to connect the 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 social determinants of health with better health. Uh, what, what, does the, what does the research show in terms of projects like Lisa's? Uh, what is the, the national effect, the broad effect? I think, I think the takeaways from the examples that you gave, were, which
5: were great examples, is that we have to look at these systems. These systems that are around housing, employment, income, uh, education, and access to care, and some of the others I mentioned, we have to look at these systems and see what is it that needs to be repaired in those systems to make certain that these systems work better and that these systems can work better together. Because it's very seldom that um, one system fails uh, one individual. It's usually a multiple, uh, multiplicity of systems that are involved in someone's life and lifestyle. Um, what, I, what I appreciate about your example was that um, the employees, in this case, uh, were able to uh, manipulate and be flexible with dignity. OK, same with the uh, video clip. Um, they wanted to have access to healthy foods in their communities. They didn't ask, um, uh, give us uh, cheap foods. They didn't say, um, have somebody deliver to our house. but we'll put it in a place where we can have access to it and we can live with dignity as we do our work. If we approach these social determinants of health, um, these non-medical and economic uh, factors that determine health outcomes, and try to think about how do we make these work better, for people and work better together for people, we will see differences in outcome in the health outcomes, but also, like you were saying, in productivity, in absenteeism, in um, the profits um, of these uh, businesses that are involved in this case. We need to make certain that there is a shared value for health in the United States that um, cross-sector collaborations are fostered and worked on together so that they're mutually beneficial. So that when the healthcare in the example of the clip, you saw a university medical student, okay, working with community, working with business, and coming up with a solution that was good for that community. Okay? These are sectors that don't always come, come together to sit down. But we need to do that, because it's mutually beneficial for our country. We need to make certain that equity is what we're looking for and that our communities are healthier and more equitable. It, you should not have to live in a p- polluted community just because you're poor. Okay, You should not have to, especially when you're living in the same city, like in my example of Washington, D.C., everyone there is paying their taxes, but some people are living in worse off conditions because of their economic status, because of their background, because of the way the systems approach and address people there. And then lastly, we need to make certain that um, when we think about these drivers that are... um, uh, affecting health disparities, and we think of these solutions. We also have to um, think about the unintended consequences that may come about. You know, there's a lot of well intended um, projects and interventions and approaches that once they are tested, and you know they actually can um, not be as beneficial as we think. So rethinking this um, holistically, thinking about this culture of health in America that is inclusive, that is predicated on equity first, um, so that we can be in a vibrant, healthier society, it'll be good for us. It'll be good for all of us.
1: Hmm. Well, I have more questions, but Lisa Meyerwitz is here to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Give us questions from online, I assume?
4: Yes, thanks. And we have a really active chat. There's a lot of questions, and we don't have a lot of time left, so I'm just going to take a few here. Um, Here is one from Todd. It seems that many of the factors listed from wealth, education, healthcare access, stress, et cetera, seem to all cluster around personal empowerment. Has there been much study in how well a person thinks they are empowered
0: compared to their overall health?
1: Question: Who would like to take that one?
0: I'm happy to start because I just taught a class today <laughs> from 10:30 to 12:30, yeah. <laughs> where the chapter was about. Um, well-being and empowerment and efficacy, (laughs) and how it related to social determinants. So I think one of the major black box areas is how does a social experience become embodied? How does it get into your head? So it has to get into your head some way. It can also bypass and go by behaviors, but it isn't magical. And um, the idea that empowerment and self-efficacy and this sense of, control and ability to to manage things is really very, very important. Um, So I think there's been some work that suggests this. I don't think there's been enough work. It's really a wide open area. But the common denominator, the idea that in the end you feel empowered, is very central. And I also think this idea of dignity is quite central, that somehow people act um, with dignity, that they feel um, they're important, they're respected. And that sort of thing uh, it still doesn't mean to me that that's actually where we should intervene i think we still probably want to intervene at the social experience level because that's what shapes these these down source, sort of downflow resources but it, it is very important so it's a it's a great point
5: and i do think there Thank is you. a wide body of literature that shows that social and emotional well-being is very, very important. And that that may be what undergirds empowerment as well. So making certain that um, our vulnerable families and children are able to have social and emotional well-being, I think we'll get um, Mm -hmm. to that as well.
4: Lisa? Great. I'll take another one. This is from Sarah Conkle. If there is continuously more evidence on the role of nutrition and exercise in overall health and therefore our nation's economic security, why haven't physicians incorporated this into their treatment regimen? Why is there little or no way to refer these services to patients? Are there roles for health nutrition coaches and personal trainers? Who really controls dietary and exercise guidelines?
1: I think. Anyone can answer that. Let's I can to... speak to,
4: to certain pieces of that. Um, so the
6: um, when we think about the role of physicians and other healthcare providers in terms of um, enabling their patients to access, in this case, healthy food and exercise, there's. Uh, a set of challenges they face. You know, one is frankly the challenge of time. They usually have you know 13 minutes with each patient. Patient. That's part of how we've designed our our healthcare system. Um, you know, frankly, the incentives historically haven't always been aligned around this. You know, historically in the healthcare system, and frankly. Even today, uh, in many cases, patients being more sick is actually a positive economic event for a healthcare institution. And um, you know, it's only now as we start to think about other payment models in healthcare that the the financial incentives actually align to say this is how physicians and other healthcare providers should be spending their time. The other key piece of this is how do you know where these resources are located? Um, and so, as we health leads have sort of thought about how do we really arm um, healthcare providers and healthcare institutions with the tools that they need in order to be able to do this work well, we've sort of honed in on kind of what we think are um, very briefly five key elements of this. So, one is how do you really ensure that this is integrated into the clinic visit? So, you know, when the medical assistant says blood pressure, height, and weight he should be also asking whether there's food at home um, or whether that patient has access to an exercise program. Um, that's the first piece. The second piece is you know, when these issues arise, how do you really have a, a dedicated workforce, exactly as the, the person asking the question framed, whose job it is to really think about how do, we, um, how do we connect a patient to the local farmer's market the same way we can connect the patient to the cardiologist if that's what they need in order to be healthy. The third piece is how do we, again, and make sure that they have high quality information about the resource landscape. And through HealthLead's work over the past couple of decades, we've really found that what's critical is, a, is a, um, a technology platform that enables folks to readily identify and connect patients to the right set of community resources. You know, With a Spanish speaker on staff, open after 8 p.m., Another key piece that was, I think, related to empowerment is follow-up with patients. Um, you know, we have a, a, an approach at Health Leads where we follow up with patients every 10 days until they get the resource to really help them navigate the barriers they may encounter. Handing them the phone number is not enough. And then the final piece, which we've talked about, is really collecting data and understanding, you know, where are uh, we successful in connecting patients to the resources and where are we not and why, so that we can then strategically um, direct our resources to really shore up the communities um, where those gaps exist.
1: Great, thank you. Do we want to take a question from the studio? Do we have questions? You, sir. Uh,
7: I was born and raised in Himalaya, uh, one of the landlocked and mountainous area. Uh, The only thing I reached to Harvard today, I am blessed is because my father was the only educated person there and he was a school teacher. And there was the only primary school there. So what I can see in my life is the education which brought me here. Uh, Once uh, it's uh, talked about uh, the empowerment, uh, the first thing that strikes to my mind is the education. So the question is, uh, is the role of the education, can we do a system where the education for the children should be irrespective of their background and the whole United States education should be a uniform education opportunity for all? I think
5: um, from your observations, what's really clear though is um, education can be linked to income. Uh, Education can be linked to uh, where you're going to live, housing, the community that you're going to live into. It can be linked to your access to health care and services that are are necessary and needed. I think your observations are right on the mark and that we have to look (laughs) at education plus those other things and make it so that there's equity in each one of these systems so that people can benefit from them. Thank you.
4: Thank you. I encourage everyone to go online. We have a lot of questions coming in. I know it's time to wrap up, and we want to take some final comments. So, okay.
1: Thank right, you. Um, I would uh, ask each of you to um, share with us um, at least one policy takeaway that you would uh, have from this poll and from our discussion here today. Let's start with Dwayne. <laughs>
5: Beautiful. Um, I was sitting here thinking, I, you know, from the poll results, uh, it was very, very clear. That people pointed to things that are going on in early childhood as being important in um, health and adulthood. So um, I, I won't have a specific policy in mind, but we really need to make certain that we can um, find ways to improve the social and emotional well being of children in this country through policies and other systems changes. And so that's what I would offer.
1: Okay. Uh, Bob, I skipped over you. I didn't mean to. Uh,
2: th- so I-, I would join. Uh both Lisa and and Duane here. The the problem is is getting people who don't confront these issues every day to focus on them. And so in order to do that you have to have things that people relate to. One is kids. Mm -hmm. So when you frame it and then the second is and uh, if this was another environment I would uh, tell you I'd counsel Lisa really doing well for politics. Uh, The issue of work structure affects basically every family in America today. So the minute I take that as an issue, I can have people in suburban Topeka, Kansas, shaking their heads about how we have to do this. And so the, the central issue, it, it, uh, it's a guilty about being in polling, is that you realize that there are millions of people who live in communities that don't directly confront this. So we've been successful on food. And the, the food desert works because people who are not living in food deserts now agree mm-hmm. that this is incredibly important. So we have to have a way to reach people, but we have to structure the issue in a way that people who don't live with these problems every day can get in the middle of them. And to me, kids and work, and making those things work, uh, cross a lot of boundaries. And I think the poll could look a lot differently if we focused on some of these issues in the future.
1: Lisa, one policy takeaway?
0: That's great to hear. I actually um, agree. My sense is that families do everything they can to take care of their children and each other. And we constantly make that really hard. And the way that we could make that easier is to think about labor policy. So living wages, sick days, family leave, flexibility, there are a million work solutions that would enable people to take care of families um, and their own health much better.
1: Rebecca.
6: Yeah, I would say that for far too long, we've allowed the healthcare system to operate in kind of a data free zone with respect to patient social needs. One of the physician leaders that I was talking to just a couple of weeks ago said, you know, really kind of poignantly and candidly, he said, you know, when it comes to patient psychosocial needs, that's all we know it's a black box, and we have no idea what that actually means, you know, whether that means that a patient's running out of food at the end of the month, or that they can't pay their heating bill, or the living doubled or tripled up with another family, like we we just don't know. So the policy recommendation would be to increasingly require healthcare institutions to actually collect information about their patient's social needs, and to develop a set of metrics that really enables them to understand how and in what ways they can engage with those needs in order to improve the health outcomes of their patients.
1: Well, this has been a very interesting discussion today. Uh, We have to wrap it up here. Uh, There's a conversation going on online, as you heard from Lisa, and I would encourage people uh, to continue to participate in that. That's at forumhsph.org. And on behalf of Harvard, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and our speakers here, I'd like to thank you for joining us.
0: This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.